All right. <clears throat> Are you doing it? Yeah? I can't see anybody. Yes. Are people nodding? Oh, oh yeah, yes. Yeah, right. Yes, we were. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, they all left. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> now that we're friends, here is an album you would like. Here is a book you would like. I think you'd like my cat and also my dog. Because we're friends. Now that we're friends. Now that we're friends. Now that we're friends. Now that we're friends. Hello and welcome to Now That We're Friends. The podcast that takes your life questions and gives you homework. I'm Caroline. I'm Gail. I'm Anne. And <laughs> I was going to go in. I'm taking a drink of water. <laughs> I was like, I hope they they appreciate the pause. Um, they respect the pause. No respect here. It was funny. Gail's right. <laughs> gone. Gail <laughs> gently passed away. Uh, so gently. <laughs> Okay, um, we're good. Let's give it a few seconds and I'll jump in. And I'm the producer, Lee San. Each episode, we tackle a question sent in by friends and listeners on how to deal with a problem by giving our arts recommendations to help. We are so glad you're back with us after two years of hiatus. Yay! Guys. Two years. <laughs> two years. Um, yeah. Dos años. Well, how's everybody doing? So, dos años just made me think this is going to be totally irrelevant to Anne and Gail, but Lisanne, rude. You know how at the end of a quarter at the Heat game they say two minutes, <laughs> dos minutos. So my coworker is neighbors with the dos minutos guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What I have like I'm already creating a list of people I need to tell about this. I know. In my head. It was very exciting. She just like tossed it off. She's like, Oh yeah, he's my next door neighbor. I was like, that local celebrity? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how's everyone else? <laughs> wow. Not living in Florida, that's for sure. So Gail, I also do had you a remember the time when just you and I had this special inside oh. joke that we're going to detail now yeah i do, do remember, i absolutely remember you remember that let's talk time. about michigan no shut up caroline last week when ann visited Uh-oh. gail's class and then the two of you texted about it, it for like true. an hour after and also <laughs> and also relatedly i got ann some bath bombs today so she did Aww, i got a package nice. in the mail which never happens and it was so exciting it was so like it smelled so nice and floral when I brought it in and I thought I didn't order these did I and then I opened it <laughs> and it was from my friend Gail so that thank you that is so nice it's finally time for me to take a bath so <laughs> I, I am it. making a yeah a very specific comment on Anne's hygienic habits one of the bath bombs is a giant golden egg so I'm curious <laughs> to see what's inside that bad boy 
Do you, yeah, and the other one is the, did I get I got you the duck one right too? Yes, and then there's, there's one like, that's shaped a, like huge, a duck, like giant gobstopper looking bath bomb that I'm also excited about. So yeah, just as a if you haven't used Lush products before, I usually split them over two baths. You don't have to, but I find that Ooh. using one in a whole bath is gilding the lily, as they say. <laughs> that's good to know. Those I have very... not. I have not had their products before. I buy, like, the knockoffs. Um, so I'm very excited to have the real deal. So thank you. Yeah, well, they're great. And they have, they, they like, come with, like, they're lotion-y. So, like, when you put them in the bath, they're going to make your skin smooth. That's awesome. That's true. Too. <laughs> yeah. So. We're sponsored today by <laughs> yeah. Lush. Not God, that I oh, wish. Because otherwise I'm just, you know, I'm so scaly. So... Yeah, yeah. And 20% a off lizard. NTWF 20 for 20% off. And Stinky Lizard Homes over here. Gross. Um, anyway. <laughs> anyway, that's what's new with me. So far we've Nail. talked about two. Yeah. Two times where someone has gifted someone else a smell product, yeah. a, a scented situation oh <laughs> i think i think the other That's one amazing. happened pre-recording no yeah this is yeah. A, okay a pre-recording moment and now this you guys will never know who else smells good on the team <laughs> <laughs> well it's me and lisa because that those are the two things that our stories do not have to do with anything so we smell good no one's really cared about us uh smell wise that's for sure that's for sure <laughs> or no <laughs> one will even go near us yeah, or no one has even been near us enough to know. Oh, God. I just have gotten worse and worse. Oh. Anyway. It's gonna be May. It's wrapping up National Poetry Month. Whoa. We have a very special episode. <laughs> do, 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 On this. Do, tonight, do. we have a very special episode <laughs> of Blossom. Oh, Blossom. Um, well, shall we jump into the question? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Woo. Tonight we have a question from Daniel who asks, as someone who is hesitant to take on more student debt, how do you suggest I develop as an artist outside of an academic program? How can I become better without consistent feedback from others and how do I seek feedback when needed? Well, I find that very difficult. It's tricky. And I've stuff. been in an academic program. Many. <laughs> Too many, true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think this is a good question. I mean, I think like there's a lot of especially, you know, with an MFA program or something like that, where like, you're not necessarily doing it for a better job or some, you know, like you're not, it's not a, it's not a degree that has like a higher paycheck at the end or something like that. Like, it's really kind of Am I here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
weird shit <laughs> popped up on my screen, but now it's good, I guess. What kind of weird shit? So my Siri thing, like, oh, fucking hate. Sometimes that stupid robot in an Apple computer thinks I'm talking to her when I've said something that's not her name and will pop up on the screen and then I can't hear you guys anymore because it's like it like cuts off my audio and that happened and then I got like a Riverside notification that like they couldn't access my video at the same time so I got confused I'm gonna go back okay this is a great question because I feel like you know as someone who went to an MFA program and found a lot of value in it it is it's such a pricey endeavor and like also time away even if you get a full ride it's time away from like your real life um without like a higher paycheck or something in mind like it's definitely not a degree that like leads to necessarily any professional opportunities so I think it's such a great question to think about you know the less formalized, less academic ways to develop as an artist, because it's definitely not a necessity to do it in this like formal academic way. Mm-hmm. I think this is also a really good question, like about um, we and I, I don't know how else to put it, but like like strangely, like the the artist's ego and like the mm. artist, like how one sees oneself and how like like feedback is really important or, you know, being able to kind of access the world and have, because as <laughs> this is what I teach in my introduction to creative writing classes, which is in school. So ignore it. But um, <laughs> the first thing that we talk about our very first day is a quote in the textbook that says creative writing is for, is for others. It is not just for you. When you do mm. creative writing, you are writing for others. And I always ask that question as like part of their first homework assignment. Cause Oh my God, my little freshman hate it. Like, uh, I'm just writing for myself. I'm writing about vampires so that I can talk about my feelings. And like, I'm just, I just want to get my feelings out about vampires or whatever. And those are valid. Fine. But there's a difference between writing for yourself and writing so that like in order to communicate. And if you want to communicate, you do have to involve or you do at least have to think about another person receiving it. So mm-hmm. like if someone doesn't get it, you can't just be like, well, too bad because that makes sense if, to if me. If you're writing yeah. creative writing, then yeah, the goal is to communicate. Yeah. Or that defense so, where like, know, I... well, it really happened. So you right. can't, you can't like, okay. critique this. But right. Yeah. There's a difference between you know, if you're writing for yourself, that's, that's what journals that's are great. for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's a totally different thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally different thing. Yeah. Yeah. I do think though, I mean, yes, we, Gail, Caroline and I all went to an MFA program. And in fact, that's how we met each other and became friends. Hi guys. Boop, I just boop. met you yesterday. So. But I think, you know, all the things that are most important from the MFA program are things that are important outside of an MFA program. And I think to me, this is kind of part of what your question was was getting at, Daniel, too, was how do you learn to, to trust your own instincts when you're writing? And I mean, even though a workshop has a, a built-in community, it's still sort of a process to learn mm-hmm. whose feedback and what kind of feedback to trust. And I think a lot of that is self-work and work that you do outside of a formal program. 
if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That comes from also just being being in the world and when there's so many people who like go to or who sign up for grad school who go to an MFA and they hate it because they don't have the because like that program doesn't actually have like the reasons we loved UMass was essentially because we found each other um and we found friends and we found community and we found like a really friendly like triangle of people that helped us be better versions of ourselves but like if that's not there, the MFA sucks. I yeah. mean, not always. Don't listen. Yeah, to me. but totally. like the, the, all, like all it does is it can kind of like put the seeds in the ground. But what it, whether it grows or not, whether it actually happens, is based on luck. And and those things are can be completely separate from whether you have an MFA pro, like whether you go to an MFA program or not. Yeah, I like what Anne said too. That like it's a combination of honing your own instincts and finding community but even that finding mm-hmm. community piece is a part is is like partially your own instincts because you need to know whose voice you trust and whose <laughs> feedback is is valuable and who's like I like that I still I have things and I should just give it up but like there are things I cut out of a poem based on like advice of somebody that then I'm like why did I do that you know because that's like a learning process of um of figuring out and, and having like that balance of confidence in your own instincts, but also like humbleness and openness when you need it, not to be like, no, my, like you can't be too precious, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a challenging um, line to draw. And one that's like constantly moving, like even as you feel more developed or more like settled. Yeah. Yeah. It actually reminded me, I have another, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> No, I was just going to say, like, trust and instincts are kind of moving targets throughout your life, yeah. right? So yeah. it's kind of an, an eternal question. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, when we send each other poems, even now, you know, a, a decade after our MFA program, you know, we're always, we're always to each other, right? Saying, does, does this work? Like, does this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just today, I texted you guys a poem and said, is this something or should I just start it over from scrap because yeah. I don't have any any sight on it right now? <laughs> yeah, and I emailed you both a poem a couple of weeks ago asking the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, is this a poem? So, I mean, that sounds, that sounds scary, but I think there's – for me, there's a lot of, like, solace in that too, knowing mm-hmm. that other writers who have been through formal programs and not formal programs – it's just being a writer and being an artist – I think is mm-hmm. that you you are always kind of moving through those phases differently or moving and, through like, them and, and moving yeah. toward discomfort or like like using discomfort as a way to move forward as opposed to like cuz again like when you lose your instincts I feel like a lot of it is just like I'm feeling either too comfortable with this this feels like fine and not scary or this feels too scary am I being an idiot mm-hmm. um And that's kind of, I mean, there are always balances of just like at what point is, like I always tell my students, if they feel too comfortable finishing up something, it's usually because it's cliche. Um, (laughs) Because they're like, when you're trying to finish something and it feels right, feels extra good to close it up. It just in my head all in one sentence. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Just funny. It just was the first thing that came to my head and it felt (laughs) right. It's like, well, odds are it's because it's the thing that's comfortable. and it's the thing that you lean on. And so, yeah, it's like move – it's – it's you're constantly trying to like – and then once you feel comfortable with the thing that like two years ago would have been really risky for you, but like 
and now two years later, you're like, yeah, I always do that now. So now you have to find the new thing to be challenged by and to be to re risky with. And so, yeah, it's like trying to kind of just figure out. And sometimes just writing it all is a hard enough challenge. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause I think a lot of times that's why we write, like send each other poems. Cause it's just like, hey, so it's been a year and a half since I wrote a poem. Um, Here you go. Just, just so you know, I wrote one. <laughs> Science of life. And- <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so sometimes that's just the challenge itself. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of one of the themes I found myself putting together recommendations towards was this theme of letting it all in and thinking about that through writers and particularly poets who I love, who I think just move through the world, kind of letting all of their experiences and their friendships and their communities into their work and then kind of paring it down from there, which is something that I have struggled with. Sometimes when I write a poem, I get so frustrated. I just want it to be in its final form. And I have to always remind myself, like, start big, be messy, right? Like, start with the mess. I mean, I think it's also part of that, like, Anne Lamott shitty first drafts thing. But when it comes to any art form, I think starting with this attitude of I want to just let everything in and then I can sift through it from there. And I think a writer who does that really well, who lets it all in and writes for themselves, but also is just like also always writing for their friends and to their friends is Frank O'Hara. And I'm just going to read. Oh, so good. I'm just going to read a couple things. And then talk about them. So this is a poem by Frank O'Hara called Song. I'm going to New York. What a lark. What a song. Where the tough Rockies eaves hit the sea. Where the Acropolis is functional. The trains that run and shout. The books that have trousers and sleeves. I'm going to New York. Quel voyage. Jamais plus. Far from Ypsilanti and Flint where Goodman rules the empire and the sunlight's eschatology upon the wizard's bridges and the galleries of print. I'm going to New York, to my friends, mes semblables. I'm sorry for my French. I suppose I'll walk back west. But for now, I'm gone forever. The city's hung with flashlights, the fairies unbuttoning its vest. Every line in that poem ends with an exclamation point. And you read it as such. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Very good <laughs> I reading. Was worried about my, I was worried about my um, French. I forgot that that poem had French in it, and my French accent is not so good anymore. It was plebeian. But I just... If, w- if one might say. <laughs> Thank you. C'est magnifique. <laughs> uh, mais oui. Um, <laughs> but what I love about Frank O'Hara is just how effusive he can be about just letting all of life in and often how his poems can vacillate between this just like I'm going here I'm doing this I'm on my lunch break right I mean there's all the lunch poems where I'm experiencing this and it's enough right that's that's a poem but then there's also you know his more interior poems when he's really grappling with anxiety but I just 
what I love about his work is that you can tell how he's processing things because he's just kind of putting it all out there. And I think that that's always something to remember, that I try to remember when I am either writing poems or or trying something new. And just to say like, hey, this might be really messy, but that's where the discovery is. And then that's where the threads are that link you to like the really good stuff. I mean, I think Frank O'Hara really exemplifies the importance of finding a community. So I think this also goes to that goes to your question about, you know, feedback, Daniel. I mean, so much of of Frank O'Hara's life that's that's in the poems and outside the poems and and in his essays, right, are are all of his interactions with his friends who are many of them are poets, many of them are not. I mean, he had many friends who were, you know, painters and and other visual artists and that was just that was as important or sometimes more important that he had friends from other circles outside of poetry and writing that also influenced his work. Like, I feel like we started with a bang with Frank O'Hara, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I love, I was trying to remember, I was like, who called his poetry? I do this, I do that poetry. And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, he did. <laughs> he just called it, he called his own, and I was like, because I was thinking maybe it was someone making fun of, like maybe it was like John Ashbery being like, oh, you know, the I do this, I do that poetry. And I love that it's actually just Frank O'Hara. I love how you make John Ashbery into like an old bitch. <laughs> like, I don't know if he would disagree. <laughs> I mean, he's not with us at the moment, but or the moment. Ever. moment. Is he like Jesus? There's a second coming. <laughs> He'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. He'll be back. But yeah, I mean, oh, um, he's great. And and I was also reading rereading some of his prose too. I mean, his he wrote this this essay called Personism. A manifesto which speaks to that gale of that like I do this I do that and he's like everything is in the poems mm. you should wear pants tight enough so everyone will want to go to bed yes, with you, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wear I, I wear I, don't, I teach that in my classes <laughs> I wear that in my classes gale. I wear I wear tight pants so I, I teach. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna report you <laughs> <laughs> But I have just one little, one other thing I want to read by Frank O'Hara, if that's okay. And then let's it's please a, move indeed. on please. to somebody else's. <laughs> oh, wait. And per- personism, really quick, though, and this is to kind of connect back to your point, how he says that talking to your friend or like how writing your poems is just should be just like picking up the phone. Yes. Mm. Right? Isn't that what he says? Um, <laughs> can you tell me read this maybe yes, more times I, than and I, I have it. I have it right <laughs> in front of me. He's basically talking about like you should like write write poems to the people that you love. <laughs> and- well, and how many times like when you are teaching a workshop or like participating in a workshop, does it come to a part where someone's like, "Well, what I wanted to say was blah blah blah," and everyone's like, "Write that down." Like yes, whatever yeah. you were trying. <sighs> it's just so good. You guys. Doing every day of my life. <laughs> He is so good. I love him. Anyway. And I just RIP too soon. I know. Mm-hmm. But I just want to read this little bit from a memoir he wrote for Larry Rivers, who was one of his artist friends. He also wrote a lot of poems. 
featuring and to and, and about, but it just kind of speaks to this kind of building a community aspect. Larry Rivers, a memoir. I first met Larry Rivers in 1950. When I first started coming down to New York from Harvard for weekends, Larry was in Europe and friends had said we would like each other. Finally, at, for me, a very literary cocktail party at John Ashbery's, we did meet and we did like each other. I thought he was crazy and he thought I was even crazier. I was very shy, which he thought was intelligence. He was garrulous, which I assumed was brilliance. And on such misinterpretations, thank heavens, many a friendship is based. On the other hand, perhaps it was not a misinterpretation. Certain of my literary heroes of the Partisan Review variety present at that party paled in significance when I met Larry, and through these years have remained pale while Larry has been something of a hero to me, which would seem to make me intelligent and Larry brilliant. Who knows? Anyway, he just goes on and on about the importance of Larry Rivers in his life, like, just as a person, but who also, you know, brought him closer to this larger community. And you need to trust your gut and your art, but you also, I think, part of that too is finding your people. And that can happen anywhere. That doesn't have to happen. Frank O'Hara did not find his people in an MFA program. He did go to a master's program, but most of his friends, you know, he met, he met in New York afterwards. And that's kind of when his, his artistic life really started. I love that. What, what, did he get his master's in like art preservation or something? I literally just made it up. Um, do we know? Yes. Let me, I was just looking at his BA in English at Harvard, studied poetry. Let's see. Master's in English at the University of Michigan. Oh. Um, Old AA. Ann Arbor, not <laughs> the degree. Yeah. Or and then he the moved to New York. Stuff program. <laughs> yeah, he moved to New York. He met James Schuyler, be- mm. became a front desk worker at the Museum of Modern Art, and then like started to meet all of his artist friends. And Great. And went to an, a party by with John or a, a party hosted by John Ashbery. Yeah. Who said that Frank O'Hara That Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Dumb poem. And they never talked again. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. I love that. I have kind of just a button to put on that recommendation, Anne, which is that one of my recommendations was in a similar vein. I don't have a lot to say about it that's not something you already said, but it's um, Truth and Beauty, A Friendship by Anne Patchett which is her memoir of her friendship with her best friend, Lucy Greeley. Um, And they did meet in a formal education program. But the reason I recommend it is just the same reason. Like, yeah, so they happened to meet at an MFA program, but that's just one place to meet your people. And the importance is like just seeing the way that they influenced each other as people and as artists and kind of seeking that out in different ways and in different types of communities um, and school doesn't have to be it. And a lot of people don't find that at school and find that very disappointing. I would love to read that. I haven't read that. Oh, it's so good. Um, I guess I'll, this is probably a good place where mine will be my reservation recommendation. Um, 
And it is, and I'm hoping that maybe you guys can help me um, piece my thoughts together because this is, it was a very strong thought that I had, but I'm not sure about the wording of why exactly it means so much to me. Um, but I think we're kind of getting there. Um, my recommendation is Goodwill Hunting. Oh. <gasps> so there are a lot of things. I mean, okay. I was so like my I, I was kind of looking through like I, I was imagining this this person who lives their life um, in which like things are going really, really well or seemingly things are very comfortable. Things are very um, exactly the way that they like it. Things are, you know, kind of the same, which is what he likes and he doesn't like any change. And I was thinking about all the people in this movie that he made. Weirdly, they all happen within this one movie. Um, they don't happen outside of the movie. Um, but he, the people that he meets in the movie, um, like his girlfriend, like Robin Williams, they challenge him in these ways that really, really fuck him up. But in the end, like really help him grow. And I think there's also a little bit, so I, this like certainly made me think about like, how you can't just sit back in your own, and I say ego, not like in a narcissist term, but like the way that you imagine yourself and the way that you see yourself as like a whole person. Mm -hmm. You can't kind of sit back in your ego and be comfortable with that because those things are not, um, are often not um, healthy for you or helpful for you or even helpful for other people. And that you need to find someone or some people who um, can kind of call you on your bullshit because you can be really good at stuff and you can really follow through on those things, but you still also need um, this kind of combination of like real life friendship, reading lots of books um, and things like that, 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 that help make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable. Um, and I'm thinking, and I, I and the, the thing that I was thinking the most, I don't know why I'm, I'm, you guys are the only ones who can see me, but I'm doing a lot of this Italian hand gesture thing. But I find that um, one of the things about get, like receiving feedback, so like I've often like I'm trying to figure out this stupid manuscript of mine that like I can't, oh, I just can't for the life of me get picked up. And so I keep thinking it needs to be changed and I keep trying to make it better. And I have sent it out to a couple people to be like, please just tell me what's wrong with it. Please just tell me like, how can I make this better? What can I do about it? And they, and like the feedback is very helpful Often it's feedback that I don't want to say I know already because it's not necessarily true. Often it's really helpful feedback that I didn't know, but it's often feedback that I'm like, cool, awesome. I'm not there yet. I can't do those poems yet. Or I can't like these are not poems that can go there yet. Or maybe, the, you know, that's a thing I can look forward to with this, with these other poems. But like, I, I don't think that I like I'm at the level or like I'm not I don't think I'm ready I'm not in the place where I feel like I, I can't even get there with these, these poems yet. And that feels like a very, you can receive as much feedback as you want. You can ask people as much as you want for their stuff, but unless you're ready to move forward and make yourself uncomfortable and really kind of itch or scratch at whatever that itch is, then it's not really going to work. And so I feel like a lot of that has to do with Goodwill Hunting in a way that I'm not super sure what's connecting yet. Is it um, Ben Affleck at the end being like, yes, that's every what morning, I, was say. I hope you don't walk out that I door? I mean, it's definitely, that's where it started, right? So it's Ben Affleck at the end saying, um, like, you know, I, I need... I'm, I'm hoping, I'm guessing this is what you're saying. We're like, you, if I see you again, like there, like every every morning I wake up and I hope that I, like when I come by your house, you're not there. You're not there. Yeah. And then one morning at the end of the movie, he, he goes home and he's not there. Um, and I really love that. But I also really love 
his relationship with Robin Williams. I mean, not duh. Guys, I'm gonna go out of the limit. Hot take. <laughs> his relationship with Robin Williams is very good. Um, but like, I'm also so like the way that Robin Williams sees through him and sees and understands that like there's more than just school that you and, and more than just I don't even say school learning that you can bring into things. But so I'm thinking. So two things. One, I'm thinking of the. Um, part when Will goes to um, Robin Williams, <laughs> Sean, uh, for therapy like the second or third time, whatever, and he looks at that painting of Sean's and like really fucking tears it apart and is like, I think you're, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think you're just like piece of shit. And, blah, blah, blah. and it really tore Robin Williams up because he like really, quote unquote, like tried to see through him and he tried to say something. But then this is clearly someone who like, he doesn't know anything about life. He doesn't know anything. I mean, he like has read a lot of art and he can make these like grand statements. And he's so, and like Will is so accustomed to being right and seeing through these things and like trying to like nail people by saying the right thing in a really smart ass way and like get people like pin them down. Um, but then Robin Williams says, you ready? First thing he says is, this is the, um, the word is an episode. Um, what do you do? Scene? Session. Session with his therapist. Oh. Oh, scene, and then, but session with his therapist. Um, and Robin Williams says, uh, Sean says, I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Stayed up half the night thinking about it. Something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep and haven't thought about you since. Do you know what occurred to me? Will says, no. And Sean says, you're just a kid. You don't have the faintest idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and, then, and then he says, Michelangelo, you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seeing that. If I asked you about women, you'll probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. I ask you about war. You'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watch, watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known someone that could level you with, known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that love for her be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hands because the doctors couldn't... S I'm so sorry, my dog. That's okay. Hey, Hubble, can you not drink right now? <laughs> through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the terms visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you. I see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depth of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and you ripped my fucking life apart. So... This is what really came to me after, like, I, I started with, with Chucky and then I left with Sean because to me there's this sense of, and I'm not saying, like, you got, you know, you, you stay out of school and live your real life and, like, Ugh, just don't listen to what anything thinks. Maybe go to war. And, like, I'm not saying <laughs> any of that. But I'm saying that 
there's so much more to learning and to writing and about art and getting people's feedback that's so much deeper than then the even if you're just reading a bunch of books outside of their MFA program, I guess is where I'm getting at too. But also this idea of just like calling people out on their bullshit, which I think you can do for yourself too. And I think you can find people that can do that for you. Um, I don't know. I think this would be a really good movie to watch to kind of just think about like what is it, what is it you're scared of doing, or what is it? How do, how can you kind of get yourself past that zone of feeling feeling comfortable? Yeah, yeah. and like the narratives the narratives that we write for ourselves to yeah. so that we don't have to feel feel things or experience things. I think that's I mean, you guys know, I that movie <laughs> I was like on the verge of tears. I mean, it's the best movie. While you were reading it. It's not your fault. Um, it's not your fault. But no, Gail, him, I think why. I think there's so much in there about yeah, about ego and about living your life and living your life with the right version of yourself and with the right other people mm. too. And, 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 and a lot of the, the base of this is about an, maybe an inappropriate relationship with your therapist and like maybe don't do that, but you can find someone for whom that labor is mutual. <laughs> you can both be that for each other. <laughs> I think so – that brings me to one of my suggestions, which is a podcast, and it's um, the comedian Mike Birbiglia has a podcast called Working It Out that he started during the pandemic, and I think like it's very much because of needing – like, you know, he's someone who works out material typically on stage, right, like with an audience. So it's not – it's a different type of community, but it is like needing community, needing reaction feedback to like develop his art, and – during the pandemic being like very siloed um he decided to start this this podcast where he could work out material and the format is that he has someone on each episode it's like kind of like not interview it's like very informal conversation he has some like standard questions he asks them that are like more on the playful side and then he does work out new material with them and invites them to do the same and sometimes the guest does and sometimes they don't and it's not always um, comedians, a lot of times it is, mostly it is, but like, I think like the first episode and, um, I think he's had him back again, Ira Glass, who's like been an editor for him in the past is someone who he has on or like the writer, John Green, or like actors who aren't necessarily like even writers at all. Like, so it's kind of, it kind of ranges, but you can see he talks a lot about like the process of creating things with these folks, which is interesting to like hear all these answers. But then also like you can see him literally working out stuff and like it's just kind of walk with me for a second. But like when you you have a writer who you love and you are familiar with their work from like a collected or a selected or a selected poems, right? Like if you're if you like you've only been played the hits. I remember like digging into like first books by some favorite writers of mine and being like, oh, every poem's not a hit. You know, and I think it's like really encouraging just to see like the route people go on and like the ways people learn and develop, like even even in what's evident from their work itself. But then like to hear someone like try out something, someone who you think is really funny. Like I I, I like Mike Birbiglia. I like his comedy. Sometimes when he's working stuff out, I'm like, that's not very funny yet, <laughs> you know, and it's like it's just really like it's encouraging one 
there's like a great amount of vulnerability and being like, oh, this is something I'm thinking of doing and like letting someone in and letting someone like monkey around in your process with you. But then also um, you get to see kind of behind the curtain about how that creating is happening. So I just think, I think you would enjoy that, Daniel. I think that it would kind of help you see at least the way like one person gets at making that community and striking that balance between like personal voice and the way you allow others reactions to shape what you're doing with that voice. I love that. It reminds me of um, on Do You Need a Ride when Karen and Chris are talking about their process and how um, in the last few years, Adam Sandler was showing up to people's yeah. shows, like amateur shows or whatever. And like, just cause he wanted to know like what good comedy, what like he really wanted to kind of work on his craft. And he like in, in this like really genuine way of just like, so I'm like old time guy now. I'm, I'm, I'm like set in my ways. What do the new kids do? And like, but like earnestly going to these like younger comics and be like, so why, what made you think about that? Like, why did you do this? Like, and I find that like earnestness really uh, endearing. Um, and so which like comedy is just such a vulnerable thing. And I love mm-hmm. it when people can actually use that vulnerability. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, so that all reminds me, and I'm just, I'm just thinking of this now. But there is this series of events at the at the Library of Congress here in DC called Life of a Poet, mm. which is unlike any other poetry event that that I've been to. Because it's more, it's more of a of a conversation, um, and what you were both saying made me think about it. So it's this it's this series with contemporary poets who sit down with Ron Charles, who's um, a book reviewer for the Washington Post. The few days before this event, he reads the poet's entire bibliography, hmm. often in one sitting. So reads all of their poems, reads like interviews that they've done. And the poet doesn't know what, how this interview is going to go. So instead of the poet selecting what they want to read, instead, they come and sit down with Ron Charles, who leads them through this interview about their, that kind of weaves through their biography and also then ties in poems that sort of fit along those themes that he's pulled out of their of their whole body of work and who will ask them and has poems bookmarked throughout you know all of their all of their collections and so we'll ask the poet you know to you know to to read this poem that's that's on this particular theme and it's just one of the most intimate experiences with that I have that I have been to because the poet themselves is is surprised by where the conversation is going and it's just this kind of testament to vulnerability and hearing about your work from someone else who has just sat down and spent so much time with it in a way that maybe no one else has except the poet themselves. And so these conversations are just really 
really beautiful and often emotional and I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm sorry. Just cut that out. <laughs> no, I love that, Anne. I mean, no, I, think... I want to hear more. Yeah. But I don't, yeah, I are don't, you kidding me? That was really I great. I, I don't know where I'm going with it. Like, I don't know how to tie it back. I think you did. It's vulnerable and it's about people talking to each other. Community. But there's just this, like, this magic to it and this. This sense as an audience member, it's usually in a pretty small room, you know, the event has usually maybe 50 to 75 people. So it feels like you're kind of in on this conversation, right? That you're that you're listening in. And the poet comes in not knowing what to expect. And no matter what, there's always this bond that forms between the poet and Ron Charles. And the poet is often just surprised by the direction that the that the interview goes, and is often surprised by the poems that that Ron picks out because often he will pick poems, you know, for someone like Ray Armentrout, for instance, who's written like dozens of books, or someone like Mary Rufel, or I'm trying to think of of other poets who have several books, but he will pick poems, you know, that they wrote 20, 40 years ago that the poet just kind of forgot that they wrote. And so it's, it's just this like really genuine, often raw moment that you're experiencing as an audience and you're experiencing it along with the writer. And so you feel like you're, you're just part of this, this intimate conversation. And so they end up just um, sharing things, you know, the poet will share something that, you know, recurs in their poems, whether it's like their own illness or the death of a loved one. And it's just this, this rare vulnerability where you, where you feel like, you know, they know their work, but to have someone else kind of step into that work well there's something in being seen yeah, yeah. it's like, so, like there's a difference between like doing it and then being seen in that work I really mm-hmm. like that that really so that makes me really excited and makes me think of one of my other suggestions which is like a totally different format but the effect I think is kind of the same which is that I want to recommend um the Beatles documentary get back that just came out that it's three super long episodes. It's like each episode's like three hours, which I watched it in like much smaller doses, but you're just watching them create. And like you, I mean, obviously it's not things that like happened years before it's, I mean, it is to us, but like it's, it's, you know, it's happening for the Beatles in real time, but like you're seeing those like moments of discovery and vulnerability and like you're seeing them like have those like um like they're bringing fresh work you know like they're like George is like here's a song I'm working on and like in the moment there are like these negotiations of like is it ready is it not like where am I on it like it's very like like your experience as a viewer feels very much like you're peeking in on this process because it was like it's just like so the for if you don't know I feel like everyone's been talking about this. So it's in some ways like kind of a moot uh, 
recommendation, but um, if you don't know, Danielle, it's like a period of 21 days when the Beatles were recording um, much of what would come on both Let It Be and Abbey Road. So it's like this really insanely productive 20 days of like writing and working things out and they're just cameras the entire time. The entire time they're in the studio, they're cameras. So like every moment is captured. Like all these just like, like both like them like working out lyrics to things that you're like, shit, I know every lyric of this like the back of my hand to like them having little fights or joking around. Like everything is just captured. And so there is this like openness, rawness, vulnerability. Like you really just feel like you're peeking in on something that feels like sacred almost like because of how storied, you know, the Beatles are and these albums, like, because when you hear them be like, you know, when you hear Paul say like, oh, this is what I've been thinking about. And he sits down and like plays like the opening, you know, chords to let it be. And you're like, wait, this is the first time like John, Ringo and George are hearing anything about this. Like it, it feels crazy that this is something that is like on tape and the way that they negotiate, like, you know, it's clear that Paul and John like wrote so much together in their youth and they have like these instincts for each other's works, but there's also times where like, they're like, no, this is my song. And they don't say it. Like there are all these like really kind of like well-worn ways that they negotiate these things with each other in like almost like an overly civil way, but like where it's clear, like Paul's like, no, I want the song to be this way. Or John's like, no, I want it to be this way. Or like George is like, neither of you see the way I do anything, you know? And like, they really have to like toe the line of when they want feedback and when they want to stand their ground on what they're creating and when they want to be more collaborative and when they're like, so I don't know, Anne, I feel like I went on a different direction, but the way you were talking about like how it feels to be in that conversation is kind of how it feels to be like peering in to this like creative process um, in the Beatles documentary. So I would, I recommend that. It's another like, yeah, there's just something special to seeing the way something that you know so well comes into being and hearing them like sing a lyric and you're like, no, that's wrong, but they just haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> like, it's like, it very well could have ended up that, but you know, it doesn't because you know it so well. Um, and just like being in on that process is, is wild. Yeah. Yeah. And, and similarly with the, with that, Life of a Poet series, which I should say you can watch on oh, great. YouTube or on the Library of Congress's website. So you can watch all of them. They're great. But yeah, that peek behind the curtains into the process. And then also this bonus with these poets for the Life of a Poet series of them kind of forgetting mm. why they wrote something or remembering after they read it and saying, God, I haven't thought about this poem in 20 years. I was living in this apartment in Philadelphia and I was sitting at the window and, oh my God, I I forgot hmm. about that apartment. I forgot. And so it's also this moment of like rediscovery for the artist, right? And that rediscovery, I think, is is important to <laughs> to being yeah to being to being an artist and to remembering why you created something the way that you did thinking about ways that you might do it now 
but also kind of paying tribute, right? To it is what it is because because I wrote it in that moment, and then revisiting it with with newer people. There's just something um, really special about that, and so it's it's kind of a behind the scenes for the audience, but then also for the artists who are kind of remembering what the behind the scenes is themselves at the same time, if that makes sense. Yeah. What a, what a, a stressful, interesting, wonderful job that must be to prep. Because you say it's a few days beforehand. I would freak out because if it were that, like, if it were your job to, like, read everybody's bibliography and have an idea and, like, in interviews with them, I would, like, much like a certain podcast that I work on, um, like, I feel like it's this, like, or and it's also like writing a poem where every time you're like, I can't do this. There's no way I can write this poem. Or like, there's <laughs> no way I'm going to be able to do any of this. It is all ridiculous. Like, I, it's walking into a room in the dark every single time. And then as you're, like, reading and you're like, oh, oh. And so you just have to, like, trust the fact that, like, you will find some themes. You will find something that's really mm-hmm. interesting. And you are, you are going to connect to this poet in a way, even if it's not like your favorite poet in the whole, or one that you thought your favorite in the poet in the whole world was, you'll find these ways to connect, and you just have to trust that you will. Yeah, because yeah. you do every well, time. Well, and then the reason that that Ron Charles took this on is because he was not a huge contemporary poetry reader, and he wanted mm-hmm. he wanted to get more familiar with with contemporary poets and so he signed on for this for this series and he ended up being kind of the perfect person for the job because a lot of the questions that he asks the themes that he asks are are things that you know at first might seem kind of obvious but when you sit down with someone's entire body of work I think it's it's actually easier to see the themes that continue to emerge that maybe even the writer hadn't been completely aware of and so it's kind of this this key mm-hmm. into <laughs> into mm-hmm. someone's life um and how that how that kind of marries with their work as well but it's um that's awesome it's like having a really good therapist yeah well <laughs> and often they end hunting, up hunting, like, crying together <laughs> on stage and it's wow. just, um, it's, I mean, it's hard to explain without, without watching it. So please, Daniel, cause I, and I also just okay. think as an artist, like watching, you know, hearing other, hearing other artists, you know, engage with their work, but then also kind of rediscover it at the same time. I think that does a lot for your drive. I, I always leave events like that mm-hmm. feeling like I want to write and create. So love it. I do have to go back to the Beatles. I did awesome. recommend for you, Daniel, listening to with a little help from my friends. Aww. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> oh, that's something that's really sweet about the Beatles documentary too, is like, first of all, they are always playing music. Like it, it like they're just like constantly like like they'll just start playing like freaking like chubby checker songs or like it's just like random shit but they do like just play songs they wrote when they were like 16 together they play songs like it just feels like very like the process of their collaboration and all of them but specifically Paul and John's collaboration is like so much at the forefront of 
what happens just because I just kept thinking the entire time I was watching it. I was just thinking. And also, obviously, like Linda Eastman at the time, but McCartney is on, um, is there like, and sometimes with, with her daughter. Um, I just kept thinking like how incredibly devastating the loss of John must have been for Paul, like to see them working together and even like frustrated with each other. But there's this like, there's this comfort, there's this like level of, I don't know what the word is past just like familiarity. Like, I don't know. There's this like deeply. Maybe it's not on us. Yeah. Like there's this like, (laughs) there's this like way that they like jibe that's just like, I mean, we have friends like that, you know, like we all have friends like that, like, and I can't imagine creating with someone like that. And even though they had broken up, like that person's still there, like they're still a touchstone. It just, I've never, I've thought how sad it was that John Lennon died. Obviously, I actually got to see Paul McCartney when I was in high school and he like played a song he wrote for John and George had had died like a few months before. So like he played something in like Remembrance of George and it was like clearly like I've thought about like, oh, it'd suck if your bandmate died. But like it never has occurred to me like the singular impact they had on each other's lives. And that was really in my head. So yeah, when you think about get by with a little help from your friends, (laughs) it's – um. Yeah, it's just sad to think about that coming to an end. I don't that's not part of the recommendation, Daniel. It's just that seeing people work together and collaborate in that way is really inspiring. My suggestion is to think about John Lennon's death. <laughs> My suggestion is the cranberries I just shot down the <laughs> um, Oh God. <laughs> but yeah, um, when that like that collaboration is just constant and you're always mm-hmm. around each other and you're all you're like yeah that's for that to come to an end is just it's just devastating yeah and like there are also because they were I don't know there are things that are like very sweet but also I'm sure like have I don't know legal reasons but you know they get songwriting credits on each other's songs even though they didn't write them so like they're like when they're playing something on the documentary, this is going way too fucking far into this documentary. It's almost going to be as long as the documentary Welcome itself. to Beatles chat. I know. <laughs> well, the documentary get, is what, like eight ahead. hours? So yeah, you're it's really like nine just hours skimming long. the surface. I am. <laughs> yeah. I am. But it is, I mean, but it reminds me of like in, in Fleetwood Mac when they, when they did The Chain and like so many people collaborated on it and like John McVie really like brought the song together because they had like two separate songs. And they were like, how the fuck are we going to put these together? And then John McPhee was like, oh, by the way, I'm a bassist. Um, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to play this bass line. It's boom, 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 And what it did was pull the two songs together. The chain and then Stevie brings Nicks us together. Goes like, <laughs> it brings us together. And then Stevie is like, oh, hey, I wrote this poem a long time ago. I think actually the lyrics fit on this entire thing. Do you mind if we just use those lyrics? And Lindsay was like, fine, but whatever um but then they all decided because and mick fleetwood is the drummer he's 
Fleetwood, right? Like he was there from the beginning, but he's the drummer. He's never going to be the songwriter. Yeah. Like he's, he's you the know Ringo. what I mean? Like unless, yeah, well, Ringo wrote Did some songs. Like <laughs> a little help for my friends, <laughs> for example. Yeah, Octopus's Garden, classic. <laughs> he's working that out um, with, jo- with George in the documentary. You get yeah, to see them yeah. bring that to, to life together. Oh, God bless Love Ringo. it though. But there's um, so much, there's so much trust it. in there, right? Like, Finding yeah. finding your people and but still discovering new things together and like pulling new things out of each other. I think that's also important in Womp <laughs> Womp. Yeah. I mean I was gonna say bringing the best out of each other and instead I said something that kinda sounded gross. So pick whichever <laughs> one you want. Pull stuff out of each other, bring the best out of each other. (laughs) Yeah. But I love that. Like, the collaboration is not just like, hey, we're working together. It's, it has to come, it has to come from, from trust and also risk and also being able to accept feedback. I'm also thinking of (laughs) Under Pressure, (laughs) which is one of my favorite (laughs) collaborations. Which is just fucking weird. And essentially improv. But it, yeah, but it works. You've got, you know, Freddie Mercury doing his like in the background. And it's weird. Yeah, wasn't it like Bowie was working on something and then Freddie came by or one, it was one was working on something and then the other came by and was like, hey, what are you working on? He's like, I've got this like beat going on. And then they're like, you wanted, and like in 24 hours they made it. Yeah, and it's just. It's weird and it's incredible and they're two weirdos trusting each other and discovering new things. But it is People on the street. <laughs> I love that song. It's so good. Me too. It's so good. To be clear, I didn't, I didn't fin- but to be clear, everybody on the chain has a songwriting credit. So they all get the money. That was my whole like thing on the chain. I didn't say that That's part. That's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. But it is because Mick Fleetwood wouldn't have any money. Everybody else would get super rich and Mick Fleetwood would have no money, but is like the essential part of Fleetwood Mac. That was all. Didn't finish that. There's a part in the Beatles documentary where John goes, <laughs> did you guys see a band called Fleetwood Mac on, I can't remember what show last night. They were really good. <laughs> And it's great. It's like the first time he sees Fleetwood Mac, and he's like, "This band, watch them." <laughs> I hear they're they're going to be something. <laughs> All right, let's please walk away from the Beatles. <laughs> we have to well, get we have to get back. I mean, after you listen to with a little help from my friends by the Beatles, you can then listen to Joe Cocker's version, yeah, which is amazing. And then you might as well just watch the Wonder Years because what else are you doing? <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> not, you haven't seen not it. working on really your art anymore. Productions about Daniel, yeah. <laughs> but I love it. What would you do? What yeah. would you think if what I sang out of tune? Would you, do- oh. would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ears, and I'll sing you a song. I'll try not to sing out of key. I get by with a little help from my friends. It's just, it's just so endearing Good. and simple and amazing i actually so i understand i am fully aware that the movie is awful but that um beatles movie like that um what do they call it the beatles oh god or that they made the whole movie with uh 
Beatles music behind it. What is Across the Universe. Oh. Across the Universe. Thank you. It's like obviously a terrible – because there's no – I don't understand the plot. There's nothing going on. But like most of the music is really good actually. Like Joe Cocker comes on and sings as part of like one of the – I'm not saying all of the music on the Across the Universe soundtrack is great. But like there's this like like Let It Be is really beautiful. Um, and Joe Cocker comes in and I think sings on like um, – a little guitar for my friends. What's the the strumming the guitar thing one? Um, well, my like, guitar gently. <laughs> so strumming the guitar. Um, a little guitar for I'm, my I'm friends. I'm pulling this stuff right out of my memory here. I was like a um, ukulele for my friends. Yep, yep. Um, no, but there's the that version of a little help for my friends is really good, or I think is really good because I don't remember why, but it's very good because the friends show up, I think is the whole thing. Um, and then like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I like it when the, co- like when there's, when the chorus comes in and you can actually hear the chorus behind them. A like, chorus chorus. Cause it's like a chorus chorus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. <laughs> a chorus, of course. And any, any, any more tips, tricks about a little help from my friends? No. I think we've truly exhausted it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to make sure. I didn't want to move on because we, you know, feel like we railroaded Anne a couple times about that song. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. <laughs> I just think it's a helpful, it's a helpful refrain. Sure is. Get high with, you can't get high without your friends. Yeah, that's also true. You can. Yeah. I mean, it's not true. It, but you can. It's happened before. But do you want yeah. to? <laughs> no, it's not advised. <laughs> yeah. Um I have a few thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> I um and and also I think speaking of like uh Caroline talking earlier about like having people in the back of your head as you're ed- editing your poems and stuff. Um I I think this is like thinking about the things that you do and thinking about your like pet habits as a poet and what you should get past and those like um, landmines of errors that you offer like pet crutch things like words that you lean on and stuff like that. Um, I had a an earlier teacher in my career um, who was really was pretty critical of using the word I a lot in poems and I, I understand why. Um, I think it was also a critique against like contemporary poetry in general. Um, so there's like a whole, I think there's a whole story or like a whole feeling behind that, that critique, but it was very much like, you know, stop relying just on like, I do, <laughs> Sprinkle Hair would say, I do this, I do that. <laughs> and of course, and, and again, this can be a critique that someone doesn't take personally, obsessively, whatever, but like, that's my job. I take things personally and obsessively. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh my God, I can't ever write a poem, an I poem ever again. I can't have an I in a poem ever. So I'd start write, writing like he, she. And then I was like, I don't even know who the fuck I'm talking about. Why am I writing about he and she? Who are these people? I want to write to a you. I just want to tell them stuff. And then, and so it became a lot of like you stuff or whatever. Um, and it just became like, and I mean, I think in the end, it probably helped me clarify who I'm talking to and who I'm talking about and like what I'm trying to say. Um, but I took it as an undergrad or whatever, like, oh my God, I'm being so self-involved. I can't believe it. I can't believe I'm talking so much about myself. This is so stupid. Gail, you're the worst person ever. Um, and this is par for the course for a lot of my undergrad where I like really overtook something that someone said thinking that they like 
they thought I was going to take it normally, but instead I was like not at a place where I could take that. Like my ego was not that high. I was like, oh my God, I am the worst. Thank you. Thank you for telling me that I'm the worst. Um, and so I really overthought about this criticism a lot. And then as the years went on, I kept that little person on my shoulder, that little, I would say that person, but that critique on my shoulder. And then just was like, you know what? Fuck it. Why don't I just write a poem that's all eyes? I'm just going to write about, I'm just going to write I over and over and over again. And that's what I ended up doing. And I think this like weird fucking poem, but I was like, you know what? If I can't use eyes, I'm going to overuse eyes. All I'm going to do is use eyes. I'm going to keep using eyes and I'm going to start every poem with an eye and we're just going to see where it goes. And I just went with it, like kind of did the opposite of whatever this fear I had of this, of this like crutch that I would lean on. Um, and so anyway, I met, I think at AWP, Ben Mirov, who wrote the poem, nope, who wrote the book Ghost Machine um, by Cake Train, which there's, that's two, there's four nouns, Ghost Machine, Cake Train. Um, and I just love this book. And I, if, if it's something that I think I, I, you might be interested in it, but um, there's a couple, there's like a long poem in here, longish poem in here um, called I, comma, Ghost, E-Y-E, comma, Ghost. And it, it starts with, so every I I'm about to say is E-Y-E, by the way. Um, and it starts with just like, I wake up in a construct. I lay on my bed and sweat. I replay final moments. I try to picture her face. I program a future version of myself to remember it. Slick with seawater, ringed with wet hair. I go to a little shop where they sell machines that keep you up. I lay the crumpled body next to a convenience store. I place the organs and stuff. Like it's just I, 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 and it does this. And I, and I met him at AWP and I was like, I just really appreciate that poem. And I was like, I, because I have had this, this feeling for years that I couldn't use the word I in a poem but then just recently I decided I was going to just go nuts over it. And I was just going to do the exact opposite of what I'd been afraid of doing. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly why I wrote this poem. <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank God. And he was like, yeah. He was like, I was just so, I mean, I, I can't exactly remember our conversation, but essentially, because if, if he listens to this and it's like, that's not how it went, then I'll feel really weird. But um, it's a, it was essentially like, yes, that's one of the reasons why this was sticking with him was because we're all, we're like, we're poets, man. We're so like we we are incredibly self-involved people as a as a group. I'm not saying I'm not putting us all in the same group, but like we can be. Uh, I would say self-involved navel gazers. We can be navel gazers. Stay with, stick with that one. Um, we can be navel gazers, and we can stick too much with the eye. But at the same time, we're also incredibly sensitive people who are worried about hurting people and are worried about like being too much or doing something wrong or making any mistakes. And hi, Hubble. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, I don't know. I just I think there's a level at which like there's like yes, take critique, absolutely ask for critique, but also at the same time, maybe there's there's a level at which you can go with your instinct or think about why that critique is the critique that it is or think about why it is you're afraid of that critique or why does that critique really like affected you as much as it did and then maybe do that exact thing but just do it more or find some way for it to I don't know it just there's this there's this kind of process that I really enjoyed about that it was like probably the one time that ever really happened but um I like this idea of of being critiqued and then after some time just just doing the opposite of it really, really hard. <laughs> I, I love that you point that out, Gail, because I think like this is not 
necessarily why you brought it up, but I think kind of implicit in Danielle's question is that like going about this the academic way would be like the best way. So like what's the alternative? But I think like something that's always present in an academic track is that there are these like outsized voices, outsized opinions. Like there's a, there's a power balance in there being like these impressive poets you're working with who like, you know, I remember like just going to drop some names here, but like, you know, we all got to work with James Tate at, in our MFA program. And I just remember like he was very kind of reserved in, in his feedback. Like he really let the class give a lot of feedback and then he would like pepper things in here or there. And I remember thinking like, well, he knows how much his voice means. Like he knows that like if James Tate thinks this poem's not strong, like you're not going to work on that poem anymore. You know, like that there's just like this, you know, and that sometimes our teachers, um, because they have that like power balance, um, can sometimes say things that aren't helpful, you know, that end up being like, you know, something you, that gets in your head too much or that gets, and that kind of figuring out your community outside of that, not to say that like you don't want to reach out for the opinions of like, you know, respected writers or artists in your field, like nothing that at all, but that like the institutionalized, like there's a right or a wrong, there's a hierarchy is maybe not always the most conducive to your personal development and growth. Yeah. I like that a lot. Thank you for connecting that for me. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is, it's not saying that, that what that person, that teacher said was wrong. They probably were completely right, but it was like, it was not what I needed to hear at the time, it turns out. Um, and, and and I think the way that like I probably presented myself as a student made it seem like I was the kind of student who needed to hear that, right? Yeah, but, and if it had been at one but of But I, your... I was like too sensitive. Yeah, and like if a classmate <laughs> then, or friend had said it, like it, it might have yes. like, you know, percolated a little I've bit, like, but it whatever. wouldn't have like stuck there for so long, you mm-hmm. know? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, if it – even like even if it was just – even if it was like out a person who – wasn't my teacher, but was a really good poet. And they said that I'd be like, what do you know? (laughs) For some reason, I'm not like, not what do you know exactly, but like there's for some reason, some sort of subconscious difference, but like when they're your teacher, it's like, oh, you're right. I I am terrible. Okay. I should really work (laughs) on that. You know? But that I like kind of that. Brings I me... like that defiance oh. in the other direction because I think that's also it's important. That's also that's also a, a vulnerability, and mm-hmm. and a risk to to say okay maybe maybe that's true. But for just a minute, why don't I just lean in <laughs> and see where mm-hmm. it goes? And maybe it will actually lead to to someplace interesting. Um, when it started to make me see why I like to use I so much, because actually it's a really generative word <laughs> and it leads you to really active verbs, which I feel like as poets, we often forget to have active verbs. <laughs> um, early poets do anyway. We have a lot of snowflakes falling and dying and spinning and uh, no, I mean, none of those verbs, the snowflake's not doing anything. It's just being adjectivized over and over again, right? But like when you have the I, the I can do stuff. The I, I mean, if like in the beginning of that poem that I read, the I is just... I do this, I do that. It's very clear. And I feel like it's 
it's actually really helpful as in writing. So it helped me realize like why it's, I don't know why it's effective, why it does what it does. And so I don't need it as much, but it really helped me understand. Yeah. It's like a little fuck you, but then also, yeah, I get why I do this, why it helps. That kind of brings me to my last recommendation, which is um, the Beatles documentary. (laughs) More Beatles. (laughs) It's not over yet. My brother, my brother was recommending a show to me, and I texted like, "Yeah, I'll check it out." But I'm in like hour 97 of 300 of the the Beatles documentary, and he was like, "Is that real?" And I was like, "No, but it could be. (laughs) Might as well be." be. Yeah. Um, Peter fucking Jackson needs to edit in something. Oh my god, that guy. Actually, I mean, I ended up enjoying the full Beatles documentary, but it would have been better if it were in shorter segments, um, which is how I chose to experience it. But no, I'm going to recommend um, a book of poems by the poet Samson Starkweather. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's in his book, the first four books of Samson Starkweather, which are four full-length manuscripts collected in one. Um, But I want to recommend the last one, which is self-help poems. And the way this connects is like, I think... We've talked a lot and I believe a lot in the importance of finding community and that being like a huge part of how you develop as an artist and how you push yourself and get both like challenges and reinforcements. Um, But ultimately that act of creation is usually really solitary and has to become like this solitary practice. Like you have to figure out the way that you generate and the way that you sustain that like I mean it's so self-directed like it's one of those like if you're not going to make yourself do it no one is um and so this book self-help poems it the form I'm going to read some selections from it but the form is like very much like it has this interiority but it's also written to a you. It feels throughout as though it's written like to a very specific you and as if there's like there's an exchange implied. Like there's like a – like at one point it starts like I emailed you, blah, blah, blah. So like there's like this – the intimacy of real friendship but you're only getting the one side. Like you're really alone with the writer um, and even though like he's like reaching out, like the speaker's like reaching out a lot of times, it's like inside the world of like – writing inside the world of like creating by oneself. Um, And in some ways I feel like this book could be a recommendation for anything, (laughs) but I think it's a really good one for you, Daniel. So I'm just going to read some selections from it. The first poem is almost like, could be like a little manifesto to you too. Uh, And none of the poems have titles. They're just self-help poems. This is what will happen. We will write a book. The slowest flower in the world will begin to bloom. Our parents will grow old and die of diseases we will surely inherit, and seemingly all at once. Our sisters and brothers, our friends and family will all die. We will rent a car, head for Brasilia, bleed our dreams like a thousand pound pig. You will die gracefully in the back seat to some music that hasn't been born yet 
a map of the desert in your hand, lines scrawled in handwriting I will later tell everyone is the official handwriting of the dead. I will live for 300 more years and die wrapped in a huge tropical leaf on an island they will name after me, and we will never be forgotten by anyone ever again. Um, and here's... When I was little, everything hurt. Not like it hurts now, not like spikes or iron not like spikes or iron lodged in my skin. It was more like the opposite of a kite, a premonition, like deja vu before you've learned the word, like finding your Christmas presents in the closet. Whenever I felt cheated or disappointed, my dad would say, That's life in the big city. He said it with a kind of glee that made me want to punch him. But even coming from bumfuck North Carolina, I knew when I grew up, I'd live in that city. All right, I'm just going to read two more things. That phrase, your chosen field, always makes me think of the fields of my youth. The bright green fields of North Carolina in the summer, the brown fallow fields of winter, and those morning fields harvesting fog and God knows what. Fields you'd like to wade out in like water or music, lost in their sweet laws. Memory is a department store. You walk around dazed, looking for a field to choose, but it's fucked up, like a dream that ends right before it merges into the real. No one chooses their field. The way it works is, it just happens to you. It's perfect, like the weather, like this poem. I've been trying to write to you, but find myself stuck in one of life's sejuras. Maybe away from the edge of any abyss, there is nothing to write about, no one to save. But even I know that's bullshit. I am made of lies instead of atoms. I'm afraid if I were to even sneeze, a billion of them, of me, would burst into the air, an ideal disease. So yeah, I just think there's so much that's meta in these poems about writing, about creation, about what it means to like create a life, create with language to try to reach someone to interact. But there's this like loneliness and like almost like defiant solitude in the the voice um, that I think is almost like a call to action for you, Daniel. I like that a lot. Yeah, I love that, Caroline. It's good. I I said wow several times, but it was muted. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I like that, too, because you're talking about creating. (laughs) Wow. Um, No, I like because you were talking about creating, and I was thinking about when you're – when I can't remember who said it earlier about like – but from – Sorry, we're having cat problems over the here. The cat is saying, wow. Wow. Yeah. He's mocking wow. me. <laughs> wow. That's the sound Petey makes when he um... – <laughs> That's funny because I, I mock Petey all the time for being a cat. He goes, yeah, and I go, morale, I'm a cat. <laughs> anyway, um, that's the sound Petey makes when he hunts a I was gonna say and then drops it outside of my room. That's a hunting sound. There's definitely a bug or a lizard that he just either attacked yeah. or lost. Cause it, and my mom says it sounds like a baby. It does. When my baby was littler, I often would mistake their sounds. 
Anyway, you're talking about creating, Caroline, um, creating life. And, and one of you said when I was talking about um, Goodwill Hunting, about creating like the narrative that you create for yourself and how that is so much of your ego as anything else. And so much of this is about how are you constru- constructing and reconstructing every day how you're going to view yourself as an artist. How are you going to challenge yourself today? How are you going to look at your the way that you're going to see your life differently every every single Every single day. Um, because that's really the question. Because it's not school's not, if school's not gonna do it, school's not gonna do it. I have this conversation with my my students all the time. You gotta be curious, and if school's not gonna help you do that, then school's not gonna help you do that. But you've gotta find a way to do that. And you've gotta be like if like you wanna be challenged, you wanna find new stuff, you wanna be excited by newness and discomfort and and like tr- and uh the excitement of of what if this doesn't go right. And that's that's excitement too. We can we can look at it like anxiety all we want, but also there's a little bit of it like there's like stake and risk is in that. And it can be it can make you nervous, but in the end that's where the excitement comes. That's where cool things come from. And I think so much of like all of this is trying to like, how can you create that on your own, right? And it's that you, but it's so much about you and how you're going to rewrite your story every single time. Like every time you feel comfortable, how are you going to rewrite your story? How are you going to access whatever it is? Like if something makes you comfortable, find a way that you make it just like maybe overdo it and it makes you a little less comfortable or maybe stop doing it. It makes you a little less comfortable. Like there's, there's all these ways you can kind of challenge yourself that don't involve, you know, um, teaching assistantships, um, <laughs> or selling your soul, you know? So, yeah, I think that's great. I have a poem in, in sort of a similar vein of how hard it is to, to trust yourself and to trust your voice and to trust like the space that you take up in the world and, and, and what's at stake, which I think is a lot of being a writer and an artist and, yeah, like needing needing other people, but like you said, you know, writing and creating is often such such a solitary thing. So how do you how do you handle those those two forces? Um, I want to read one of my favorite poems by Bernadette Mayer, which is called "The Way to Keep Going in Antarctica." And I wish our podcast listeners could see because I have a line from this poem on a little felt board in my room, which is very cheesy. I will tell you what it is after I read the poem, but sort of like an anthem for me a little bit. The way to keep going in Antarctica. Be strong, Bernadette. Nobody will ever know I came here for a reason. Perhaps there is a life here of not being afraid of your own heart beating. Do not be afraid of your own heart beating. Look at very small things with your eyes and stay warm. Nothing outside can cure you, but everything's outside. There is great shame for the world in knowing you may have gone this far. Perhaps this is why you love the presence of other people so much. Perhaps this is why you wait so impatiently. You have nothing more to teach until there is no more panic at the knowledge of your own real existence and then only special childish laughter to be shown and no more lies, no more. Not to find you, no, more coming back and more returning. Southern journey, 
small things and not my own debris, something to fight against. And we are all very fluent about ourselves, our own ideas of food, a wild sauce. There's not much point in its being over, but we do not speak them. I had written, the man who sewed his soles back on his feet, and then I panicked most at the sound of what the wind could do to me. If I crawled back to the house, two feet give no position. If the branches cracked over my head and they're threatening me, if I covered my face with beer and sweated till you returned, if I suffered, what else could I do? That seems like perfect advice for Daniel. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Daniel, as I have written very cheesily on my felt board, do not be afraid of your own heart beating, which is something that I look <laughs> at every day as a person trying to live a life, as a poet trying to make sense of the world and and my place in it um and learning to learning to trust learning to trust my voice learning to also trust the people who i love and trust which is which is often difficult um yeah i also i love the way that it's like what's that last line it's like what's the what's the suffering part if i suffered what else could i do yeah, well, I just like I, to me anyway, and I I am not known for my clever like correct readings of poems, um, but to me that's always been like, yeah, if I fuck it up, okay, what's the what's the worst that could happen if I do that? Like, what if I really mess up? What if I suffer? Is there like that's okay? Like your things are just gonna happen, and like that's that's part of it. And what else could I do? Is just like yeah, but. What that's it's something I think about often when I because I one of the things I do is think about the worst things that could happen and then try to logic my way out of it, um, and because it makes me feel better. I'm like, yeah, well, okay, well, what if, like, they don't like this? Well, okay, then I'll change it. And maybe I'll cry a little, and then I'll do this and this. But like, I'm not going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not you know, it's not going to kill me. Like, if I suffer. That's like there's a way to live in the world that like where you can kind of I don't want to say like make meaning of suffering, but make meaning of suffering or at least that can be a part that that's a that's a part of being a human. And there's only so like taking risk is risking suffering. And I really like that. It's just like, yeah, I'm just going to do it. I love the like double reading of what else could I do, which like it could be like a throwing up of, of hands like, well, what else could I do? Or it's like a genuine earnest like what else could I do? What is the possibility? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like reservation and possibility in that same phrase. I just love it so much. Yeah. yeah. So good. I feel like that could be a good place to leave, Daniel. You feel <gasps> good about that? Good luck, yeah, Daniel. Yeah. Hope you find some goodwill <laughs> when you're hunting for it. <laughs> You take that out. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and, you know, get by with a little help from your friends. Maybe also get back. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> get you back. know what, Daniel? Get back. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, don't be afraid of your own heart beating. But um, we wish you the best, Daniel. And now we're friends. Now we're friends. Yay. All right. All right.
Now That We're Friends was recorded in front of a live audience made up entirely of our pets. Your hosts and three new friends are Caroline Cabrera, Ann Holmes, and Gail Thompson. Your fourth new friend is our producer, Lisanne Fuck the Whales Ramos. Our theme music is provided by Gail Thompson. Now That We're Friends is an O Miami production. If you want to ask us for advice to receive our recommendations, you can send a voice memo or written email to newfriendatomiami.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Now That We're Friends and on Twitter and Instagram at NTWF Podcast. Woohoo! We, we wrapped. That's a wrap. For now.